you can grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, our ushers are walking from the front here towards the back, and you can slip your hand up in the air, and we would love to put a Bible in it. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, just take this home. This is our gift to you today. We pray that it would be a blessing to you. We are continuing to march through the book of Genesis, and I've entitled this passage, Divine Dispersal, uh, A Table and a Tower. And this is an incredibly important passage of Scripture, um, not only for us today, it has been for the history of the church. In fact, um, St. Augustine, in the fourth century, he wrote uh, his magnum opus called The City of God. And in many ways, he viewed life through this paradigm of the city of man and the city of God. And these two cities that are in many ways in competition with one another, while there is at the same time some overlap in this life. Augustine, as I mentioned, he wrote in the fourth century, and he, he wrote during a time when Christianity had seen a, a sort of triumphalism um, in the, the city of Rome and across really the world. Christianity was spreading. It was embraced in many ways as not just a state religion. It was certainly being promoted in an imperialistic kind of way across the globe, Christianity had essentially permeated much of the Roman world, especially, in a sense, bringing heaven to earth, or so many thought. Augustine himself, prior to the fall of the Roman Empire, he, he actually wrote um, celebrating Christianity's victory in the Roman world, um, which once Christianity was a persecuted religion, but now at the time that he was alive, it reigned, he said, with imperial expansiveness. And according to Augustine, he, he even believed this was fulfilling scriptural prophecy. He, he said this in a sermon. He said, the promises and prophecies of the scriptures are being fulfilled. It is wonderful. Let them sit up and note the marvelous things that are happening before their eyes. The whole human race streaming together, he says, to honor the crucified. Let the few who have so far remained aloof hear the strepitous mundi, the world's roar acclaiming the victory of Christianity. But with the sack of Rome in 410 AD on August 24th, Augustine was compelled to reimagine more thoroughly Christianity's relationship to government, to society, to civilization as a whole. And so out of that realization and that reflection, he wrote this magnum opus, The City of God, taking him almost a decade to write, it may take you a decade to read. And in the preface to the city of God, he states this, that his purpose, he states it so clearly and succinctly. He says, I have undertaken to defend the city of God against those who prefer their own gods to its founder. And one of the things he recognized was that as much as he thought Christianity was permeating the culture, what he actually saw in his reflection was that much of the culture had permeated Christianity. And there is a desperate need to distinguish these two 
cities. And so in the book, Augustine contrasts these two cities, the heavenly city and the earthly city. And the most significant difference in the two cities is discovered, he says, in what they love. Augustine writes this, he says, two loves have made two cities. Love of self, even to the point of contempt for God, made the earthly city. And love of God, even to the point of contempt for self, made the heavenly city. These cities are what they love, he said. It's this contrast between two cities, two loves, with two destinies that we see here in these two chapters. And in many ways, what we're seeing is the outworking of the two seeds that were promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the serpent would create or produce, in effect, the city of man. And as we'll see more next week, it is the seed of the woman who would lead to the city of God. As we look at the city of man in detail today in our text through a table and a tower, I want us to see both what it reveals and what it requires from both man and God, okay? What it both reveals and requires from both man and God. And I want to start by looking mainly from the human perspective because that's what the text in essence does. And then I want to turn and look from the heavenly perspective. First, notice this, the city of man requires human advancement. I want us to look at chapter 10. First point of this message is going to be chapter 10. And then the next three points will be found in chapters 11, verses 1 through 9. But let's read through uh, this chapter and let's pull out a few thoughts. It says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. There gives, there's our context. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Togermah. That's not going to be the first time I stumble, so just bear with me. The sons of Javan, Elisha. Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these are the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each, notice this, with his own language by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabdeca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrasim, Kaslahim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, and the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. 
Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hal, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelah, Hazarmavath, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzel, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they live extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Whew. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's <laughs> preacher's worst nightmare. You just read it with confidence, right? Just go for it. We see here, listen, that the city of man requires human advancement, and that's exactly what Moses is emphasizing. Now, listen, Genesis 10 is referred to as the table of nations. It's a list of 70 nations that descend from Noah and his family. So when you hear the word table, think of the two tables that make up the Ten Commandments. It's a list. What we see here, though, is fascinating, where chapter 9 ended in a very kind of clear way describing the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, we see here that we, he actually reverses the order, Japheth, Ham, and then Shem. He reverses the funnel, so to speak. After the Tower of Babel, the line of Shem is actually going to be picked up and focused in on. You'll, you'll see, if you just look at verse 10 of chapter 11 for a minute, your Bible may say this, um, Shem's descendants. And then it will say, these are the generations of Shem. So again, we see part of Shem's descendants, part of his line laid out here in chapter 10. But we're going to see after the Tower of Babel, the line of Shem is going to pick back up again because this is the promised line. This is the seed of the woman. This is going to lead us to Abraham, who's going to give us the Abrahamic covenant. There are two biographical aspects to this list that stand out. The first is Nimrod. You may have noticed that in verse 8. He gets a little bit more of a word count. More attention is being paid to him. He's the founder, notice this, of Babel and all of the other major nations that so often in Scripture stand opposed to Israel. This is going to be significant, okay? He's, he's being isolated and highlighted, and I'm going to argue in the next point, this is not in a good way. He stands out. 
Verse 25, we see a little bit of a biographical sketch when it comes to Eber, and and specifically Peleg. Now, Eber, by the way, is the the name, the word from which we get the word Hebrew. So we're already getting a hint at the the promised line here. But notice this, that Peleg gets far more attention in chapter 11, verses 10 through 25 as well. You'll notice as well that it was during the days of Peleg that the earth was divided. Here's here's what, what this means. This is the fifth generation removed from the flood, and what we're seeing is here during the time of Peleg is the time that the, the Tower of Babel takes place and the nations are dispersed across the earth. Now, it's important to understand that this is not an exhaustive list. The biblical genealogies are almost always abridged genealogies, and though they do display a literal lineage, they're often very carefully crafted to communicate a theological message. The literary structure is communicating a theological or spiritual point, and here we see just that. Now, here's what you need to know. If you're new to the Bible, maybe this is the first time you're like, well, I came to church on the wrong Sunday. We're going to be talking about, like, I don't even know how to pronounce these names just like the pastor, so what am I going to do with this? Here's what's really fascinating. Most of you have heard of the story of the Tower of Babel, which takes place in the next chapter, verses 1 through 9. Now, What you may not know is that the Tower of Babel actually takes place before the dispersal of the nations here. And so so it's like Moses, it's like he wants to put the dispersion first in our minds before he explains why or how God chose to disperse them across the earth. Why? That's a very important question. Why does, why does Moses structure it this way? Why does he flip the order on us? I, I think it's, it's, it's because of this reason here. Because God wants it clear that the increasing population of the world is primarily the result of his sovereign plan, not simply the result of human sin. In other words, God is demonstrating and declaring his sovereignty over the nations. The fact that the nations are being spread across this earth and these new nations are are formed and, and geographically we see spread and culture begins to advance. What we're seeing is this. God is overseeing this whole thing. This is all a part of God's desired will for humanity. And we know that because all the way back at the end of chapter nine, we were told that the sons of Noah we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. So, so in other words, what we're seeing here is this, this is exactly what God desires and what God has designed. It shows that the blessing of procreation and dominion actually continues through Noah's offspring. It's proving that God is faithful to his promise to Noah. And I like to think of it like this. Listen, the divine why is greater than the human why, okay? So if we read chapter 9 first and the Tower of Babel first, we might come to the conclusion that the reason nations exist, the reason people have spread across this world, is all because of sin. That's the human why. But the divine why says, no, 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 this has always been the plan of God, God has a plan, listen, this is amazing, God has a plan that trumps every human plan and even uses the sinful plans of man to accomplish his perfect will for humanity. 
Now, now, tuck that away because this is going to become a normal theme, a regular theme in, in the book of Genesis, okay? And you're going to hear it like this at the end of Genesis in the story of Joseph. What you meant for evil, come on, some of you know this, God meant for good. God can take the evil designs of man and use them to accomplish his good purposes. This, this is wonderful news, Okay? This is wonderful news because it means that, though, listen, we live in a world that is wrecked by sin. We live in a world where evil often appears to be triumphant. We live in a world where it appears that opposition to God is going to win out. But stories like this, true stories like this, remind us that we serve the God who is sovereign over all things, including sin and Satan and all the evil designs of human beings. God rules. And so what we see here in this table, this list of 70 nations, just notice that. So a a lot of scholars draw attention to this number, 70 nations. Again, Moses uses numbers as a literary feature to tell us something more significant. So what we see here is another multiple of seven, seven times 10. In other words, what's being communicated here, by the way, is that this is not an exhaustive list of nations. This is representative of the nations of the whole world. He's telling us here that this is a picture of the world. This actually helps us make sense of a a verse in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. I'll put it on the screen here for you. It says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, that phrase, uh, the sons of God, can be interpreted in two ways. It can be understood as as the nation of Israel, Israelites, or it can be um, represented by potentially angelic beings. So, it could be saying a number of things. It could be saying this, that God has parceled out the world and that the world, in many ways, has been bordered off and it kind of belongs, in essence, to uh, 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 the angelic realm to oversee it, particularly in the case of the fall, the satanic realm. It's one way to view it. The other way is to see this as being a parallel. God has parceled off the nations, and if this is true, what we understand is there's a parallel between how he has set up Israel and how he has set up the world. And Israel, we know this. You're going to see this number 70 in relation to the nation of Israel. When Jacob takes all of his family down to Egypt, how many people does he take with them? Seventy. When the nation of Israel is established in the land, both Exodus and the book of Numbers tells us that God institutes 70 elders to be representative of the entirety of the people. So there could be this this parallel taking place showing us that Israel will be instrumental in God's designs for blessing the nations. But the blessing that Israel experiences is in many ways a foretaste of what is eventually going to be received by all the world and so as we think about these 70 nations, you're like, where exactly are they? Um, here, let me put a map on the screen for you. You see that? It's pretty clear. You can kind of get a sense of where uh, each of the sons went and where their offspring began to populate the earth and how uh, culture began to advance and civilization began to spread out across the globe. And maybe we can just ask a question before we move on to our second point. What can we learn from this? 
What can we learn from the way that God has designed this, from this table of nations? I think there's a handful of things. Let me, let me give you a few of them. First, um, I think we can learn that all people derive their existence from the life-giving power of God. All people derive their existence from the life-giving power of God. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 17, verse 26. He says, and he made, speaking of God, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And what we see is is this, that the nations matter greatly to God. God certainly does love the world. The nations are God's idea. The world is in the palm of God's hands. I think we can learn this secondly. Listen, this is important in our day and age. Racism is sinful, satanic, and stupid. How's that for alliteration? Racism is sinful, satanic, and stupid. It, it actually doesn't make logical, it's irrational, especially when you see it in light of a passage like this. Every human being derives their existence from the same ancestor. Every person is created in the image of God and therefore equal in the sight of God. There is no place for racism in the family of God. Christians need to stand up firmly against racism. We can't allow it to be a part of our world in any way, shape, or form. As long as we can help it, we stand for justice and truth and the value of every human being created in the image of God. I think this also teaches us that Ultimately, we're again being reminded about a war between the city of man and the city of God. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Nimrod, as we will see, is not a good man. He's a man who represents the world. He is the founder of the very nations that will give the nation of Israel the most problems. He himself is a violent man. And I would say this as well. Remember who receives this. This is so helpful, okay? The Israelites who are heading towards the promised land are the ones who receive this from Moses. Remember that. So so what we're saying is this. This passage actually informs their worldview. It informs how they think about the world and the nations that they're interacting with, that they're coming across. It, It shows the nations most important to ancient Israel. That's why uh, Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, they all feature so prominently in this list of nations. It's also why the Canaanite tribes are all mentioned, because of the challenges they're going to present to Israel on a regular basis. But but perhaps most of all, this passage shows us the deep fundamental connection Israel has with the nations around them. Let me say it like this. There is a missiological nature to this passage, a missions-oriented nature to this passage. As Israel is going into the promised land, they're being told that God actually cares about the nations all around them, and that helps them make sense of the command that they're going to be given by God to be a light to the nations. Israel as a nation will be called by God in Isaiah to illuminate the gospel for her cousins, no matter how distant they may be. Israel is being called to bring the gospel to her extended family. Yes, as the scriptures teach, Israel is to be set apart from the nations, but listen, not for isolation. 
She's set apart in order to put the mercies of God's grace on display so that the nations will hear and be glad and turn to the Lord in faith. Israel is supposed to be this beacon of light and hope and truth to the nations. All these nations are going to worship false gods and they're going to do atrocious things and they're going to merit the judgment of God. And then Israel as a nation will see is going to be birthed and they're supposed to be a city on a hill. They're supposed to say, come leave the false gods of this world behind. Come and worship the one true living God. Come and worship Yahweh, the king and creator of the universe. Come and meet our God. And so by placing this before the tower, the table reminds us that the nations are God's idea and that the ultimate product of his good grace and perfect plan, not the unfortunate results of human sin, But, listen, part of this story is recognizing that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. So we must see that the city of God, secondly, reveals human arrogance. There is no question that this table is supposed to be read in connection with this tower of Babel. The story is woven together so that you you shouldn't separate them in your mind. So we read about God's sovereignty over the nations, but now we see how God uses the sin of man to accomplish his good good purposes. Notice what it says in verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Oh, the pride and arrogance of man on full display in this story. So we move from the table to the tower, and this part of the story emphasizes, by the way, the universal and united nature of humanity. You can't miss that in verse 1, can you? One language, same words, come let us, three times, come let us, come let us, come let us. There's a united front in humanity. They've banded together in this project. There's solidarity. This unity ought to have promoted godly oneness of faith in Yahweh, but sin and arrogance were alive and well in Noah's descendants. In fact, uh, the mentioning of moving from the east, did you catch that? You can highlight that in verse 1, or verse 2, sorry. And as people migrated from the east, now, here's, here, there's, a, there's a textual ring here, a, a linguistic ring that you should hear, because when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, what direction were they sent? To the east. When Cain kills Abel and God sends him off into his exile, what direction does he head? East. All through the book of Genesis, what we're going to see is that when people begin to move east, They're beginning to move away from the presence of God. They're moving away from the authority of God. They're resisting God. There's a a kind of spiritual or symbolic reality to what's taking place as much as there's also a literal reality. Uh, 
as they wander further east, notice this word next, they settled in, uh, in Mesopotamia on this broad, flat plain of Shinar. Um, they went to Saskatchewan. Just think that. And it's this big, flat, I was just there. I was like, how do people live here? But the word settled jumps off the page because it stands in opposition to the word dispersed. And notice what they're trying to resist. They don't want to be dispersed across the earth. And can you hear what they're saying? We do not want to obey Yahweh. He has said, go out, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We don't like his rules. We don't like his authority. We don't like his boundaries. We know better than God. We'll do what we want to do. And instead, we're going to do the exact opposite of what God says. This is a mark of the city of man. Look now at their, their plans in their rebellion in verse 3 and 4. Now, by the way, if you don't like sarcasm or you don't think it fits with your faith, then you're not going to like this text, okay? I love it because I really like sarcasm. But there, there is this sarcastic, subtle kind of mockery. And it's kind of all through. You're going to see this throughout the rest of this, this section. But you'll notice that it says, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone. Notice that there's a contrast there taking place. They had brick. The idea is they used brick instead of stone. And bitumen for mortar. Man has created what they think is better than stone. They've made these bricks. They're going to build this tower we're going to see. And here's the contrast that's being drawn here. You see, when Israel, when the nation of Israel, when they built their temple, when they built to last... They built with stone. They built with something that was strong. And there is right here this sense that, listen, only a fool would try to build a monstrous tower with man-made bricks instead of using stone. This is, listen, this is a profound reminder that whatever man builds is temporary and will eventually crumble. Powerful message to think about when it comes to the city of man that we're all living in, right? Man wants to build and man wants to be creative. And there's a sense in which some of that that comes from, right, being created in the image of God. But man wants to reject God's good gifts, wants to reject the fact that this comes from God. And instead, man wants to prop man up. Man wants to build a lasting legacy. Man wants to build something that he believes will make him great, but anything man builds in this life apart from God is bound to crumble. It's not going to last. The legacy you think you're building in your business, the legacy you think you're building with your education, the legacy you think you're building in society by your good work, listen, none of it matters apart from God in the end. But what God builds, see, this is the contrast that this passage is trying to draw for us. What God builds is permanent and will last. And so there's a sense here in which Moses is saying, be a part of what God is building. Don't pour all of your life into what man wants to build. Pour it into what God is building. Pour it into what is strong and permanent and will last forever. I can't help but think about the man who built his house upon the sand. 
compared to the man who built his house upon the rock. Or when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Or when Peter, I'm sure, with that truth from the lips of Jesus ringing in his mind, writes in the book of 1 Peter that, that the church of God is, is a living temple made up of living stones. God is building in this world, but he's building something that lasts. And, and I, if I could just urge you, loved ones, listen, live for what lasts, build what is eternal. And we're going to see that this is, this is the heartbeat of Abraham. And Abraham's going to be held in contrast to, to this city of, of man. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, props up Abraham. But listen to what it says about Abraham with his faith. Hebrews 11 verse 10 says this. It says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Likewise, in Hebrews 13, verse 14, it says this, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And while there is intentional sarcasm It's intended to draw attention to the stupidity of human arrogance and sin. And that's exactly what verse 4 is driving at. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The intent behind building the tower with its top in the heavens, listen, was to join or to displace God. And you can hear the echoes of the serpent in the garden. Here, as as in Eden, as they stood on the garden city, on the mountain of God, you can be like God. But the Bible looks at all the towers of man and views all such towers as pitiful symbols of human arrogance and pride. And this epitomizes here the human problem, right? We, we arrogantly think that we can be like God or that we can get ourselves to God. This is the fatal delusion of all man-made religion. All man-made religion is the same. Let's let's build ourselves a tower to get up to God. And by the way, this this is likely what they call an ancient ziggurat, which is kind of like this, you know, a triangle shape, like almost like a stairway to heaven. And and they thought we could, if we could get to God, they they, they believed that the gods met with humanity on the high places, on the mountaintops, and so they're trying to get to where the gods are because they believe there they will be able to be in control of their own fate. They will be gods. And I think humanity arrogantly thinks that they can be like God or arrogantly, foolishly think that they can get themselves to God. This passage shows us, listen, that all roads do not lead to the top of the mountain. 
All roads of religion, you often hear this phrase, right? You hear this all, I hear this all the time. Well, I, I had a conversation with a Muslim guy recently and he told me, we, 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 we really, we believe in the same God, right? We're going to the same place. And I said, no, no, no. He said, what do you mean? But you see, it's, it's this mentality in our world, and this is the city of man. The city of man says it doesn't matter what you believe. Whatever you believe is fine. We're all going to the same place in the end. It's all taking us to the top of the mountain. We're all going to be fine. Believe whatever you want. Live however you want. Do whatever you want. There's no consequences to it all. It's all fair game. And the Bible says that's exactly wrong. It's the exact opposite of that. In fact, there's, there is some, there, there is a parallel, right, truth to this. You know, all roads don't, don't lead to the top of the mountain, not religious roads, but they do all lead to the same destination. Not upward into the presence of God, but eastward away from the presence of God, and eventually downward to eternal damnation from God. And humanity, just like Adam and Eve, they don't want to live with those God-given boundaries that are for their good, that are supposed to be for their blessing. Instead, they reject the blessing of God. Power and glory consume the city of man. And they take after their founder. It's interesting, Nimrod, let me bring him back into this picture again. The, the name Nimrod actually means, literally, we shall rebel. <laughs> You know anybody who's ever named their kid Nimrod? And, and you know what's said about him? Again, I, I mentioned this before. This is negative. Look at what it says in verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. When was the last time you read about the mighty men? Genesis chapter 6. It's not good. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Whoa, he, he really, he was good at, you know, shooting that bow and arrow, catching lots of deer, elk. No. He's a warrior. He's a hunter of men. He's ferocious. He's this tyrannical individual who, who rules by power and authority. He was the first one with, to rule and reign with an iron fist. And he did it all before the Lord. That's not a positive thing. He did this, in, this is the sense, in direct opposition to God. God was watching. He was watching this whole trajectory. And he's watching. Oh, this is just like before the flood. Violence. Power. And here comes this man, Nimrod. And he founds Babel and Assyria. Right? He founds the nations that are going to be feared. Nineveh. The nations that will be feared on all the earth for their viciousness. For the way they humiliated and tortured and killed people. This is who this guy is. And he epitomizes, listen, in many ways, the city of man. In many ways, what we see here is a humanity in this united effort, listen, opposing God. But we need to see this. This is, this is from the top down. You have to see here, this is like a government-orchestrated event, okay? You don't get this kind of united front with all of humanity apart from some kind of authority system and structure. This is the city of the world, the city of man, from the top down, enforcing opposition to God. 
And it should be no wonder to us, listen, the word Babel is the same word that will be used to describe, or it is the same word in the Hebrew for Babylon, which will be the city that stands opposed to God, where the people of God are exiled into, and Babylon will become this paradigmatic city that will be picked up all through Scripture, and eventually, you can read about it in Revelation 18, it becomes symbolic of this statewide, national, global system. The world is Babylon. And it's imperative that we contrast the city of man with the city of God. Sociologist James Davidson Hunter, he writes this, citizens of the heavenly city, rather than seizing power, seek to be a faithful presence in the earthly city. Augustine writes this in the the city of of God. He writes that the lust for domination in the city of man results in lawsuits, wars, and conflicts. The city of God, he says, rejoices in the common and immutable good. The earthly city scrambles and fights for the limited goods of this world, and the heavenly city shares the limitless bounty of God himself. He goes on to say, conflict and competition mark one city, unity and harmony the other. Man's power and glory mark the one. God's power and glory mark the other. So here's the question. Listen, to which city do you belong? For which city are you living? Is your spiritual passport stamped declaring that you are a citizen of heaven or a citizen of earth? Are you busy building your own Burj Khalifa? Or are you investing in God's building, the one that is made up of living stones, the church of the living God, which is the embassy of his kingdom here on earth. Where are you pouring your life into? What are you investing in? What will eventually burn up in fire or what will last forever in the presence of God? Listen, what you build will be evaluated, not by man, but by God. And we see that third that the city of man reveals heaven's assessment. It's going to reveal what God thinks of it, and we see what God's assessment is in verses five through seven. It says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they, all, or they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will, be, will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, the scene switches from earth to heaven, uh, from a man's view to God's view, and God's assessment is awesome, okay? They've built this, humanly speaking, huge tower, right? It's the Burj Khalifa. It's impressive by all human standards. There's never been anything like it in the history of man up until this point. It is referred to as the stairway to heaven, the gate of heaven. And in brilliant sarcasm, Moses presents God as having to get off his throne to come down and look at this tower. 
Can you just see the humor there? Like, all right, I, I guess I'll go check out this little tower. Come down and see it. And Kenneth Matthews, a commentator, he says this so brilliantly. He says, the necessary descent of God and the humanness of the enterprise that the men were building shows the escapade for what it was. A tiny tower conceived by a puny plan and attempted by a pint-sized people. It's like God has to get in a magnifying glass to take a look at this little tower. You know, it's the equivalent of your children, right, in confidence but in ignorance coming inside and saying, Mom and Dad, come out into the backyard and look at the hole I've dug. I've almost made it to China. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, as a parent, you're like, oh, that's cute. But God looks at it and listen, he's like, that's pathetic. Humanity's attempt to play God is pathetic. You can't be God any more than you can be a cat, which unironically, some in our culture seem to think is possible. <laughs> Isaiah 40, verse 21 and 23, I'll put it on the screen. Listen, listen to what the God of heaven and earth says. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Psalm 2, which describes the nations that rage against God. This, is, this governmental city of man that rages against God. Listen to what it says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God's standing up there laughing. This is pathetic. Pint-sized people. Tiny tower. And this is polemical. Okay? There's, there's an argument being made from Moses that the, the God of the Israelites, Yahweh God, is greater than all the gods of the nations. The Babylonians thought that their gods had built Babylon. That's what they thought. That's what they claimed. But Moses states pointedly here in the Hebrew, which the sons of the earth had built. They're mere earthlings. Will this human technology offer security to save humankind? Because that's, that's what, listen, that's what the world wants you to believe. That the answer to your salvation, the answer to your security, it's found in the government. It's found in your possessions. It's found in the comforts and conveniences of this life. Will they give you that kind of security? Will they save humanity far from it? It will actually have the opposite effect. It will push them over the brink of self-destruction. And verse 6 tells us just that. Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So what, like, is God here worried? Is God like, oh no, if, if they keep banding together... Man, they're really going to do something. I'm, I'm getting scared. No. No, what God is saying here is this. Listen, he is troubled by what would happen to humanity if the human family was left unchecked. 
God is saying, listen, in, in both judgment and grace, God is saying, if I don't intervene and do something, they're going to become just like they were before the flood. They will continue to unite in rebellion. They will find no salvation. They will become irredeemable. They will turn their back on me and will never receive my mercy and grace if I don't step in and intervene. And can you just hear this for a second? That is absolutely 100% true of every single one of you in your life. If God doesn't intervene, if God in his kindness and mercy doesn't step in to you and to your sin and to the darkness of your life, you will never turn to him. You will never repent. You will never receive his love and kindness in Christ Jesus. This is powerful what's happening here. Humanity left unchecked would build up a delusion of self-sufficiency through their false religion, their corporate security and, and political uniformity and in their satanically fueled delusion they would never turn to God that their Babylonian hearts Ken Hughes says would become impenetrable and irredeemable and this by the way is the picture of the Babylon that's to come. There's a day coming when Babylon the, the city of this world will be so prevalent and so powerful and people will be so opposed to God that the only thing left to happen will be the return of Jesus Christ to judge all those who refuse to turn to him and to embrace his grace in Christ. We, we must embrace heaven's assessment here. The kingdoms of this world, no matter how impressive they may appear, listen, they're puny and pathetic compared to the city of God that awaits all who believe in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. What does this mean? This means this. Listen, we do not put our hope in this earthly city. Nor do we believe, listen, that we should disengage from this world. If your plan is to just go get off the grid and isolate yourself from this world because you don't like how sinful it's become, listen, you're, you're missing the point of the gospel. You're missing the point of the Great Commission. We are supposed to care for the welfare of the city that God has placed us in. We are supposed to be a light to the nations. In fact, I, I would say this, listen, while we are in exile, we, we do seek the welfare of the city. We pray for those in authority as the New Testament commands us to do. And because of our heavenly citizenship, we should be the best earthly citizens this planet has ever seen. But listen, we maintain not a pessimistic view of how much good can be done in the world, but a realistic view. We're not bringing heaven to earth, okay? That's God's job. We are proclaiming heaven to earth. Part of our job is to help those in this world who have been blinded by Satan to see the emptiness of this world and what it has to offer. You realize that, Christian? Part of what you're trying to do is show the world, persuade the world, convince the world, and some of you need to hear this because you need to be convinced of this yourself, that this world, listen, as, as nice as it is, as, as all the good things that we can have in this world are, listen, in the end, they are spiritually empty and void. They cannot save you. They cannot satisfy you. They cannot fill up in you what only God can fill up in you. They cannot give you eternal life. They cannot get you up the stairway to heaven. Jesus, 
Jesus has to come down the stairway to come and get you. Do you realize that? Because of his faithfulness and grace, God will intervene and foil their foolish plans for attaining their own salvation. And finally, we see this, the city of man requires heaven's antidote. Verse seven through nine says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And you need to see this as both an act of judgment and mercy. God comes down and he confuses their language. He scatters them across the earth. The the tower builders were going to try to make a name for themselves, but not the one that they had hoped for. Here's the, they do make a name for themselves, right? Their name would become a joke. Babel no longer meant the gate of God as the Akkadians saw it, as the tower builders had it, nor was it the navel of the earth as Moses' pagan contemporaries like to call it, but it came to mean mixed up, confused. It, it signified a place of meaningless babble, the site of alienation and scattering. Nobody can understand each other. They're no longer able to unite in this joint effort against God. And so what happens? They're forced to disperse and fulfill the plan of God. The book of Daniel records the glory and demise of the evil Babylonian empire. You can read about it in Daniel 1-5. through The New Testament describes Babylon as the great harlot, the persecutor of God's people, the embodiment of pride and vice, consumed with sexual immorality and luxurious living. Yet the reality of Babel's long influence in history is also the source of great hope. You see, there's a final reversal that is being promised in the scriptures. In fact, the prophet Zephaniah wrote this in Zephaniah 3.9. Listen to this, this language. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. It's interesting, in, in Luke chapter 10, in the ministry of Jesus, um, he gathers together a group of disciples And he sends them out to go do missionary work amongst the nations. And and get this, he sends out 70 disciples. Some translations have it 72, but we're going to stick with 70. But but listen, you know what what Luke is doing here? He's making a connection back to Babel. You see, with, with the coming of Jesus, the 70 nations that were dispersed, the whole earth, Okay? He sends out his disciples, and here's the point that he's making. The mission of God is coming to the world. I have come to redeem and reclaim the nations from the powerful grip of Satan. I've come to reclaim them from their uh, opposition and rebellion. And it's amazing. The disciples who come back to Jesus, you want to know what they say? They come back marveling. They're amazed, it says. And here's what they say. Even the demons submit to us in your name. 
And then Jesus, as you read through the Gospels, he dies in the place of sinners. He suffers the wrath of God. He, he rises from the grave and his death and resurrection then are validated at Pentecost when the Spirit of God is poured out upon the disciples. And then what does it tell us in Acts chapter 2? It says that the people around were amazed because they were hearing the glories of God proclaimed in their own tongue, in their own language. You see, there is a reversal of Babel taking place with the coming of the Spirit of God because of the death and resurrection resurrection of Jesus Christ, where once the nations were scattered because of their sin and rebellion, now God is gathering them for salvation in Christ. You know what's amazing? We read about God coming down in judgment at Babel. God comes down again, doesn't he? You read the New Testament, God looks down at the sin of men. And instead of coming down in judgment, he comes down in the incarnation and in the crucifixion and resurrection, the God who scatters the nations across the world now begins to gather in his grace the nations from across the world. God sent the nations away from his presence and now he sends them out. Listen, he sends us out to bring the nations back into his presence calling us to go unto all nations and make disciples. Philippians 2, put it on the screen, we close here, says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One more, look at Revelation 7. After this, the vision in heaven, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The world requires heaven's antidote the great reversal of Babel through the good news of Jesus Christ. The antidote is offered to you today. Flee the city of man. Find refuge in the city of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Augustine ends his magisterial work not with crushing loss, but with happy hope, a vision of eternal rest. Maybe you can bow your head and just listen to this. So he closes the city of God. There we shall be still and see, see and love, love and praise. Behold what will be in the end without end. For what else is our end but to reach the kingdom that has no end? Father, that's our heart's desire, is to reach the city of God to flee the city of man and to realize that safety and security and salvation only come from you. God, would you help us to devote our lives not to what is temporary and fading, not to be so invested in, in this world that, God, we miss out at storing up treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. 
Help us to live for what is eternal and lasting. Help us, Lord, to set our minds on things above, not on things below, where Christ is seated in the heavenlies. And Father, we pray that you would send us out now unto the nations, that every knee should bow, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand together.